we will probably, uh, Danny, uh, embed this um, podcast into the article itself. Oh, wow. Yeah, uh, so that the article will be there and, and there'll be a link then uh, to, uh, for you uh, or a link for the reader if they want to uh, exa- you know, listen to you uh, in terms of your kind of elaboration on some of the ideas in your article, okay? Uh, yep. And, and uh, the way Oxford, as we've learned now, works uh, is that they, uh, you know, when we hand off the materials, we got to hand off both the podcast and the article to them, and then they go through production process. So after we hand off, which would hopefully be uh, by the end of the week, we have to do editing, obviously, of the podcast. Uh, we we would then give both of these things to uh, the OUP production people. It'll take about. Um, three weeks, and you'll see the final version, uh, not of the podcast, obviously, but of the, uh, but of the, uh, of the article, okay? The article, okay. Because you had asked, you'd asked about that, right? Yeah, no, because I'm going to be traveling for the second half of November, so I just wanted to sort of budget uh, time to do the final read-through of the article. Okay, fair enough. So there's going to be a, a little upfront section that I will give on blah blah blah, and then you know I'll you know obviously include your uh, uh, brilliant activities uh, <clears throat> in terms of the of SARB and in terms now uh, yeah and your earlier um, time at uh, George Washington, right? No, uh, American University. Oh, AU. They all seem the same. Yeah. They all seem the so same. It's American University Washington College of Law. Yes. Now, what's that college like? Because I, you know, quite honestly, never heard of it. Ah, um, I, in international law, it's one of the top programs in the U.S. Okay. Uh, I mean, it's, it has a very. I used to run the LLM program. Really. The, inter, the international legal studies program. Yeah, which at the time was the probably the one of the sec- second or third biggest and certainly the most diverse program in, in the world at the time. Really? We used to have over 90% of our students were from outside the U.S. Yeah. And there were about 60 countries. Wow. So it was a, it was a very diverse program. That's fabulous. Um, yeah, it was. Uh, I'm surprised you gave it up. <laughs> uh. <laughs> <laughs> no comment. <laughs> You don't have to, you know, you don't have to, you know, prove. You know. <laughs> no, it's, it was, after I did it for about 13 years. Really? After, yeah. That's that's pretty major um, activity. Yeah. And you were also still coming, obviously you were, not obviously, you were going back to South Africa periodically? Um, beginning in 94, I started coming back regularly. Oh, once a year. Okay, so um, and after then working the... on different projects, and that's how I got involved with Pretoria because they were one of the groups that I worked with. I developed an LLM program for them, which I now run. Yeah. Yes. On trade and investment law. Um, so that's sort of how I got involved here, and then you know the opportunity to come back to the chair here was yes. too good an opportunity to turn down. Really. Eh? And I take it '94 has some meaning, obviously, for you. Yes, yeah, with democracy. Yeah. Um, I left when I was called up to the army in the '70s. Really? 
Yeah. You decided so, that, that was not a good idea? <laughs> it was not a good idea to go to the arm. It was a good idea to leave. But... To leave, right. Well, that perfectly understood. <laughs> okay, so let me then uh, start this off by just saying, you know, to welcome you. There will, as I said, there will be an upfront uh, piece there. And, and then just, you know, welcome you and then we'll go from here. Okay? Okay. Okay. So, welcome, Danny Bradlow. Thank you. Thank uh, you, Alan. It's a pleasure to, to be with you. And uh, as I mentioned to the audience earlier, uh, this is part of the uh, Global Summitry podcast series. And in your case, of course, uh, it's uh, part of the article that you provided uh, called, uh, titled, sorry, uh, Lessons from the Frontlines, What I Learned from My Participation in the G20. And in particular, this is the first of a series of what we call in the journal Summit Dialogues. We're very pleased uh, that you've been able to uh, join us uh, today and, of course, to uh, provide insights through uh, the article. So let me, let me turn to some of the um, thoughts you had in the article and uh, raise some uh, further uh, questions here uh, or views. You, one of your major conclusions in the article is to, is to uh, suggest that you know, the G20 shouldn't be viewed as kind of one summit after another summit, that it is, as you say, an ongoing process uh, and that South Africa needs uh, to identify that it is that. Why is that important to a country like South Africa? Because I think for countries like South Africa, so small and middle-sized power countries, um, the G20 is an opportunity to have a seat and to participate in sort of the premier insti uh, premier forum for global economic governance at this point. And if they if or if they think about it as an ongoing process rather than as a set of individual summits, then it makes it possible to start thinking about. Um, a medium-term strategy. So saying, how do we get our items um, addressed over time? Because for a country like South Africa, we're not in a, we don't really make the agendas in these meetings. We're a taker of the agenda, and we have to try think carefully about how do we move the, the great powers in the G20 to take our interests more seriously and to be more responsive to them. And so that that's a longer-term process than just coming up with an issue for a particular summit and thinking that, or for a particular year, mm -hmm. and thinking that if we work on it just for this year, we can get progress on that issue. Because in some cases, it's thinking through, you know, how do we advance it over a number of years, and how do we build a strategy that is built around the G20 in which other groupings can play a role in raising that issue's profile and having it advanced up the agenda so that some sort of action takes place on it. Uh, you identified in, your, in the article that, of course, there are the two tracks within the G20 um, uh, officialdom process, that is the Sherpa track, which is really the agenda-setting track, and then there's the... Uh, finance track and and you uh, as a as a an official 
at the time in the South African Reserve Bank were, was uh, identified or you were involved in that second track. Of the time you spent there, what would you regard as the most uh, significant issue that you engaged in while you were um, uh, in the finance track? Um, I, I mean, f probably from a central bank point of view, the, the two most important issues were the strong, sustainable and balanced growth agenda, so the, the framework working groups agenda. Um, just because that obviously was, I, I guess, the marquee issue within the finance track. But the one probably that uh, had the most salience for central banks in the time that I was there was the financial reform, the regulatory reform agenda. Um, because by the time I was there, I think central banks, in a sense, the, and monetary policy had had their the zenith of their, their influence on dealing with the crisis. Uh, it was the focus had shifted more to um, budgetary and fiscal issues and structural adjustment and structural reform issues. Um, so that which are not really central bank issues, uh, at least in the first sense. I mean, obviously, we're interested in it, and but it's not the, the remit of a central bank to focus on fiscal issues. Um, whereas for the Reserve Bank, because it's also the financial, re the banking regulatory agency uh, at the moment, um, what was happening in the financial reform agenda was, was very important. And there was a, so some Basel III issues, uh, some of the issues relating to lot, uh, banking resolution issues and too big to fail um, were important. And some of the Basel III issues, because of the particularly on the liquidity and the leverage ratio issues, were important because they had um, some unintended consequences for smaller economies and with similar structures to ours. So mm -hmm. uh, that in South Africa and sometimes in Australia, sometimes in other developing countries. Um, so that was an important part of our, our focus as well. Do, do you feel, given that, uh, that... Uh, uh, you were heard. That is, as a representative of the South Africa Reserve Bank, and as you, given context, right, of an emerging power, uh, but not one of the so-called established powers or otherwise, that your voice was being heard within those discussions. Um, I suppose the short answer to that is yes, but. <laughs> I, um, so, I mean, South Africa, in a sense, is in a fortunate position because our a banking regulatory structure is very well respected around the world. And so that when we speak and say we have concerns, it certainly gets heard because people are concerned, are interested in knowing what we have to say. On the other hand, because we're a small uh, financial uh, market and a small economy, um, our voice is a small voice, even though it gets heard up to a point. Um, the other part of it is, South Africa in the G20 is in a difficult position generally, not just specifically in regard to financial regulation, in the sense that we're not really one of the 20 biggest economies in the world. Mm -hmm. And we're there because there needs to be an African country in the G20, and South Africa is the most developed economy, and so therefore we're, we're there. But that means 
we have somewhat of an obligation not only to speak as South Africa, but also to speak as a, a, about African concerns. And in finance in particular, South Africa's position is not very similar to the rest of the continent. And so our position is a little bit con complicated in that regard. Um, and that, to, in my mind, also always raised the issue of how do we make sure that, that the regulatory approaches become more representative mm -hmm. and so that the Financial Stability Board, is, its outreach program is effective and so mm -hmm. that the regional outreach groupings actually play an important role in the, uh, in the FSB process. And, the, and through that feed into the, the G20. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, and that's obviously, it's, it's not a simple thing to do. And I, I mean, one example which always struck me of how South Africa and in mo many emerging markets interest is different from many of the advanced economies in the G20 and how the risk of unintended consequences is quite significant. It was in the area of shadow banking. Okay. Because for advanced economies, shadow banking is about money market funds, private equity funds, hedge funds, um, those sorts of institutions and the role they play in the financial system. And it's not that that's not important for countries like South Africa, but for us, shadow banking is also primarily about access to banking and financial inclusion, because it's about banking in institutions that are not regulated, but that play an important role in terms of um, financial services for poor people mm -hmm. and small businesses. And those institutions are not necessarily subject to the same sorts of dynamics and the same sorts of regulatory issues as private equity funds and money market sure. funds and those sorts of institutions. But if the rules for shadow banking are set according to the interests of the advanced economies, it will have unintended consequences on microcredit and small business lending. Okay, so it is essentially then, well, sometimes we call them trust companies or, or loan companies, small loan companies. These are the people that represent a significant element of the shadow banking in South Africa? In South Africa and yeah. in many emerging markets. Okay, so that's where your focus is. Again, did you feel that there was... that? Partly because of uh, the, the bank's reputation, very positive reputation, that you at least got a, a, a hearing when you raised those uh, concerns. Yes, and, and the, I mean, South Africa, because of its, it's got a very sophisticated financial system, is interested in both parts of those the discussions. Right. Uh, and so, it's, and sometimes, you know, the, I mean, we have a limited amount of capital for negotiating capital to raise issues. And sometimes it has to be focused on sort of the bigger issues rather than these uh, sort of financial inclusion sorts of issues. Um, and that, uh, to me, is, is a difficult choice that um, has to be made, is which, which issue is likely to have the biggest impact and, and where are you likely to have the biggest success? So should you raise the, um, say, the... On, on the leverage ratio issues, for example, should you raise that as a, a question around sophisticated finance because that has an impact in the FSB and leave questions of how do we manage microfinance and mm. institutions like that 
to the discussions on financial inclusion in the Alliance on Financial Inclusion or in some other forum, in maybe with with the World Bank and issues like that. Okay. And so those are the sorts of tensions which I think come up in a number of ways for countries like South Africa in the, in the G20. And let me let me you also identify in your in your article that for a country like South Africa again uh, you know uh, technically not one of the large 20 countries because your economy is actually uh, smaller than that uh, but nevertheless you you've suggested that uh, South Africa as some other uh, members uh, need to um, form alliances in order to enhance their influence in the G20. And uh, the question I had was, okay, so who does South Africa naturally kind of gravitate towards in, in setting up those kinds of alliances to g gain or add to their influence? I would say uh, the top group that we sort of gravitate towards are the other BRICS countries. Uh -huh. um, and uh, South Africa would meet with BRICS countries on particular issues. Um, but it, it's not always, the BRICS countries are certainly one group. Um, other middle powers, so say Indonesia on some issues, Turkey, mm -hmm. uh, Mexico sometimes, would be countries that we would have common interests with and could form um, alliance, sort of tactical alliances on specific issues. Yep. Um, I also, some, I mean, there were times, I think, where countries like Australia or Canada have common concerns with South Africa where there could be, um, at least on those particular issues, some sort of um, collaboration. Uh-huh. So I, I think, I mean, and this is just obviously my own opinion. Yes, of course. So you need South Africa needs to be kind of eclectic and very tactical as well as strategic in its thinking, and on each issue think through where who are the countries that have the most common interests with us, and how do we at least get them to know understand our position, and even if we can't get them to support us openly, at least that they understand what where we are coming from and. Um, are willing to pay attention to what we have to say in the meetings and in in the negotiations. And do, do you think that you know, uh, as a broad judgment, you were generally successful in being able to navigate uh, through that? Um, I subject to the proviso that in international affairs, progress has to be measured in millimeters, not centimeters. <laughs> 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 oh, no. On that basis, yes. I mean, I think we were successful, um, but not hugely successful. <laughs> okay, uh, fair enough. And let me, you know, just shift a wee bit. But you obviously identified the development working group, along with the uh, framework working group, as an important kind of working group for South Africa. Do you feel that, you know, you would be, you were able to make progress, and in particular, progress that might be wider than just South Africa's interest? You've mentioned your your African concerns as part of South Africa's um, thinking about its activity in the G20. So uh, how do you kind of measure your success in the development working group? I mean, I should say that the because the development working group is in the Sherpa track yeah, uh, and not the finance track, we didn't participate directly in that. Right. And because it, of the sort of 
focus of central banks um, on you know monetary issues and, and financial regulatory issues, we didn't directly participate in the development working group. So I think from a South African point of view, it's a very important working group. Right. Um, and not least because South Africa co-chairs the group. And so that obviously gives opportunities to raise issues. Right. But from a central bank point of view, it's not something that we, we you had participated direct. in directly. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Um, you do also talk about in your article uh, the question of... Um, the impact of socialization on officials, you view it as one of the yeah. kind of benefits. So, I was trying to understand what kind of socialization are you making reference to, again, from the standpoint of the, you know, the track two, or the second track, which is the finance track. I, I, I think it, it works in subtle ways, I suppose, but um, because I think what happens is you know, you get a group of officials who are meeting fairly frequently and regularly and to discuss the same issues each time that they meet. Um, and so that they begin to develop uh, a language and a, a, an approach to how to address those issues and they begin to develop a, a similar familiarity with, with each other. And that works to the good in the sense that it facilitates trust and confidence in each other uh, and at the margins, I think that has an impact on the way um, they work together and the way they can advance G20, uh, reaching agreement on a G20 agenda. I don't want to, I think it's important and I think it moves things forward, but I think it's, its real impact is at the margins. That if the national interests which are in conflict, the fact that um, people have confidence and respect their counterparts is unlikely to trump national interests mm -hmm. I mean um, but because of the people I, I mean I, I think it's true generally in international affairs where people meet often but I think it, given the, the way the G20 works it's so such a intense interaction in international terms um, that it, it has an impact of getting people to see things in similar ways and that I found that when I joined the um, the bank and got it started attending these meetings that within a very short period of time I had developed a network of, of contacts of people I was speaking to regularly both in the meetings and between meetings and that that has an impact on how you think and on how you think about shaping your arguments to convince people to to like or, and to accept your position or at least to understand it. Yeah. Okay. So, so let me ask you. Um, uh, you you raise the African concerns. You also pointed out that some of the African uh, intergovernmental institutions uh, do attend to the meetings, the G20 yeah. meetings, um, like the collective folks at uh, uh, NEPAD and and the AU, I presume as well. Uh, but yep. you also pointed out that because they only attend, uh, you know, kind of episodically, uh, that it has an, you know, it has an impact. Did you, I mean, are you, were you aware of that, the limitations of, of that um, going forward? I, I, yes, I mean, to me, this, it was very troubling because in a sense, having the AU and NEPAD represented is a very positive development for the G20 because it really means there is an official African voice 
yeah. that's there to be heard, and that South Africa doesn't really have to play the role of the only African voice in the in the room. The problem, though, is um, because the chair of the AU changes every year. Yeah. Um, with NEPAD, it was for a long time different because uh, Ethiopia chaired NEPAD for a number of years, and so there was sort of continuity in that. But you know, if you get the chair changing every year, um, and I remember sitting in one of the meetings and thinking to myself, you know, if I was advising the minister from, I forget which country it was at the time, uh, uh, how much attention would I suggest that he should really pay to the G20? Because by the time he gets up to speed, by the time uh, he actually can participate in the meetings, the year's almost over, and yeah. how much can they really achieve? And so that it struck me, you know, and this is where seeing it as a process is also important, is that really what should happen is there should be a secretariat from the AU or people on the AU secretariat to the continuity mm -hmm. who provide technical support to the chair, uh, whoever the chair happens to be Today. that year, but who the actual people who are going to come year after year and who can sort of start seeing how can Africa... How can Africa as a continent, through the AU and NEPAD, actually advance its interests within the G20 setting? Right. And and that doesn't happen, and it didn't happen with the ASEAN grouping as well, many years, depending on who the chair of ASEAN was. Right. Uh, for that particular year. So that's Southeast but, Asia, right? That's their yeah. grouping. But because Indonesia's in the G20, sometimes it's, it's uh, there will be an ASEAN connection that we are where they already in the meeting in a sense mm -hmm. um but it, it in a way it's a short the au i think is probably the one who has to take the lead and say we will provide secretariat support to the au uh, g20 delegation um because it, otherwise it means that inform the g20 has reached out to africa but in substance it's not really true that they're getting feedback from Africa and there's real African participation in G20 discussions. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you two, two additional questions. One, uh, for our audience, of course, the central bankers don't actually attend the actual summit. Uh, right. Uh, and so you are in the, in the meetings of officials uh, that go on prior to the summit, but not at the summit. So I, I guess the question is, but from your vantage point, did you think um, there, there was advance on this uh, growth agenda, obvious, uh, the, the, the heart in some ways of the, uh, of the working group, the framework working group, um, did you think there was advance uh, in achieving um, better uh, growth uh, over the, the period that the G20 was meeting? Um, I think, to be perfectly frank, the, I, the goal of an additional 2% of growth over the next five years, by yeah. 2018, yeah. to me is, is not a credible goal. <laughs> and I, I think developments this year have shown it. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, to give them the benefit of the doubt, I suppose it's still possible to achieve by 2018, but uh, I find that very hard to believe. Okay. <laughs> um, so I think in that sense, no. I think the 
mutual assessment program serves a number of useful functions in, in, in and this is where the socialization issue comes in again is because I think it's people begin to feel a level of comfort that they can discuss uh, some of the issues and challenges that they face as a country with a little bit more openness than they would have if it was a, a less uh, cohesive group I suppose at a, at a personal level but I, I think in reality it's very hard for me to see how a country is going to do something just to promote the G20 goal that they weren't thinking of doing for their own domestic reasons anyhow. Mm -hmm. And so that the framework process seems to me has a utility, but it's, it's not the actual goals are less than, um, is less effective than, than they seem. Um, I, to add to that, one other thing that I think should be stressed about the G20, which is, is the role of the international organizations, mm -hmm. which play quite a critical role, particularly in regard to the framework working group and the assessment program. Because, and because the G20 doesn't have a secretariat, the burden of a secretariat really falls on, on the international organizations. Um, so the World Bank, the IMF, and the OECD primarily, but with also the regional development banks and some of the UN agencies playing a role as well. Um, and it's understandable that they're playing that role, but I think they don't, they're not fulfilling their full function as universal institutions. Right. Because the, the, the vast majority of the membership of those organizations, with the possible exception of the OECD, um, do not participate in the G20. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they're not necessarily as well served by the, um, the organizations allocating resources to serving the, the G20 without having any real levels of communication and input into the, into the process or feedback from the process. And it seems to me that uh, the organizations should be making more of an effort to communicate with their, their full membership about what's going on in the G20 and to get input from those other member countries into the, that they could then bring back and inform the G20 about what are the concerns and uh, interests of non-G20 member countries. Oh, okay. One last question then. Um, uh, it was my understanding that South Africa had a real interest in the so-called uh, BEPS, uh, that is the base yeah. erosion and profit uh, shifting uh, initiative. Uh, is that, did you see that as well, that South Africa was attempting to press forward along with other countries on, on this particular issue? Um, South Africa definitely has an interest in it. I mean, obviously, as a fiscal matter, that's not central bank business. Right, but, right. Um, I mean, our Minister of Finance, or former Minister of Finance, not the current one, but the former one had been the head of the Revenue Service and had been very interested in the BEPS project, and it has been carried forward um, under the current Minister of Finance. Um, and South Africa ha plays a big role uh, also in dealing with uh, tax yeah. administration and tax reform on the continent as well. Really? So that is, is an area where uh, South Africa is trying to play a much bigger role. Um, and I, South African officials were definitely very active in the OECD process. Um, 
South Africa also has an interest in seeing that process broadened and to be more participatory. So to see the UN tax um, focus also receive a, a, a raised status and raised influence in the debate. So it's not just an OECD project. So South Africa tried to take it to a broader audience than just than just the G20, in other words. Yes. I mean, it's come up, you know, in the financing for development framework and yeah. SDGs. Um, and so that there in those for, uh, and in its role as the chair of the G77 at the moment, South Africa has has played a, a role in trying to get it raised. Um, it's also the, the high, high level commission on illicit flows. That uh-huh. uh, former President Mbeki chaired uh-huh. has also uh, raised this as a as an important concern for Africa. Okay. Well, uh, Danny, I really appreciate the time you took out of your day to join us on uh, examining some of the issues you'd raised uh, in the, the uh, lessons from the front lines. It's a great pleasure to uh, to join with you in this discussion, and I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me to do it. Okay, it's great. So thanks a, a great deal, uh, Danny, on this. Uh, I'll. Uh